Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return, property and investment podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined by Phil Mason, who is Head of Regulatory Engagement at Trustmark, the government-endorsed quality scheme for home improvements. So welcome to the podcast, Phil, and thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Anna. Thank you for the invite. Um, It's very good of you. It's always good to take the opportunity to speak about the subjects that I think we've got planned. So I recently recorded an episode with your colleague, Avin Ash, and in that one, we talked about what Trustmark does more generally and how it's critical for the urgent retrofit of UK homes. But I wanted to get you on to talk more about policy and regulations in more detail, because although some people might independently decide to improve the quality and the energy efficiency of their homes, government regulations are really critical to change at scale. And whilst it's clear that retrofitting is crucial for net zero emissions, there's actually no clear, very widely accepted definition of what net zero means in the context of existing homes, which is problematic because a critical component of achieving what we need to do in terms of producing emissions from homes is helping people to understand what they could or they should do. So I wanted to start by just asking you, what actually is net zero for existing homes? Okay, it's a really good fundamental question, isn't it? You get variable responses. I mean, many of us have views that net zero simply looks like having a home that you can heat and use where you don't produce any carbon whatsoever. And that's a bit of a challenge because there are, it's generally considered there's about 24 and a half million homes in the UK that require a level of retrofit. So some of those dwellings will require the more modern and ones that have been probably treated over the years may need fairly light touch retrofit and others will be required and have to be able to accept. So that's based on typology and the challenges with construction and locations and things like that and be able to accept some fairly deep level retrofit. So net zero or supporting net zero is going to look different by dwelling, perhaps type and location. So I'll give you an example. I live in a fairly old relatively substantial sort of Victorian townhouse. And there are some things that we won't be able to do to our dwelling because of its location, because of its external features, some of its internal Victorian sort of Edwardian features that we don't want to lose the identity and sort of architectural culture of our dwelling. So we'll be able to support net zero through dwellings, but we may not be able to achieve it as a range of houses. And I don't know, there is somewhere in the region of about 40% of the existing UK housing stock that are traditional buildings. And some of them will be fairly old, fairly well-featured buildings. But there is another big tranche of buildings that can go further than net zero insofar that they can achieve their own net zero ratings by not producing any carbon. But because of the technologies that will be installed into them and are being installed into them, they'll be able to support feeding electricity back into the grid, which will net off the sort of underachievement by some of the other dwellings that exist. So net zero is achievable through aggregation, really. And I think one of the other things to probably to really add into it, it's a bit of detail, perhaps for a very early stage. I think we expect to see more local net zero plans coming forward through local authorities and combined authorities. And I suspect that they'll include things like district heating systems. Therefore, it removes the responsibility to a certain extent on the property owner or the dwelling, because they'll be able to sign up to local net zero plans, which take some of the demand away from the building itself. They'll just tip pipe in or, or tap into a 
net zero energy supplies that will be supplied centrally, which will help enormously. Mm, super, super interesting. And also that sounds very exciting and promising. And we've talked a bit about green district heating schemes on this podcast before. So it's good to know that, that things are sort of lining up in relation to that. So essentially what you're saying is there is no specific definition. You know, you couldn't say, oh, well, we've reached a particular EPC target or and now we're net zero as officially as a home. But in aggregate, there are things that we can do collectively that can achieve net zero for existing homes in principle. I think so. There are some people that have very definite fixed statistical views of what net zero house looks like, but we can't achieve that in all properties. So it will be by aggregation. And how many do you think actually could achieve, for example, that idealistic view of, and I'm not asking for exact statistics. No, no. and I think that's the really key question that we need to answer. And I, I don't know, I can't give you a figure, but out of that 24 million, I think there's a substantial percentage that can meet net zero of their property time. So if we looked at traditional buildings being 40%, that gives us a really good opportunity of the 60% of the 24 million, if you do the maths around it, that have a very good chance of achieving it over time. But I don't think there's a figure actually published or one available everywhere. Again, it's a bit based in what people's views and ideas of what is actually achievable. But it's not only what's technically achievable, it's based on the buy-in of Certainly in the what we call it, it's a bit of an old-fashioned term, really, the able-to-pay market, because there's got to be the right drivers for people to say, do you know, not only do I understand why I need to do it, but I actually really want to do that as well. And I've got a financing mechanism to help me achieve it. So there isn't, I'm not aware of any one single individual number that's been created. But it'd be really interesting to see what comes forward in that space to see if we can actually quantify it. Very, very interesting. I also don't think, I think able-to-pay is a very helpful label for a group of effectively consumers or property owners who have the ability to in some way pay and i think we'll come back to financing later but i I very very helpful especially in the context of the cost of living crisis to understand that there are groups of people who can afford to do things and there are groups who can't and that's kind of a starting point in terms of capability so once we're clear on the goal or not clear and we're accepting of the fact that we're not clear on a specific individual house goal but rather a kind of collective housing goal the next step would be to define a strategy for achieving it. And if we were to follow the kind of path of least resistance, what would you think that would be for property owners and other stakeholders to actually aim towards achieving net zero emissions across homes by 2020? So there's a lot of moving components in that question. One is about supply chain capacity and the scale, the scale up that's required in order that the there's a big enough supply chain to be able to deliver it and one that can deliver with quality and has the appropriate green skills. There is all the financing elements around it. But one of the pathways of least resistance, and it's an opportunity that I think as a nation we repeatedly miss, and for a number of reasons, that is at the point of other building works or new kitchens or new bathroom works being carried out. Because I don't think we can shy away from the fact that retrofit, depending on the depth of it, creates a certain amount of disruption and inconvenience for the occupants. There's also cost attached to it. And we can't shy away from that either because work costs money. And I think we've got to all be very clear about that because it's investment. But when people are going through either rooming roof attic conversions or having kitchen extensions or just simply refitment of bathrooms and kitchens, there's a really good opportunity because there's an economy of scale that can be achieved. There might already be scaffolding at the outside of the building. Tradespeople already been there. There's probably refuse skip type facilities already in place. And what we can do is maximise the opportunity because whilst 
fabric work is being carried out or other significant sort of internal features or maybe even building services work can be carried out i think there's time inconvenience and money that can be saved at that point because also if somebody's going through a pretty substantial refit of maybe a kitchen or a rear extension to a dwelling it's often the time that people replace their heat source their boiler so there's the point to actually consider should we now be starting to commence our journey at a point where all this other work is going around and the other thing i think is linked to that or certainly from personal experience and anecdotal experience from people that I'm aware of, that I know, I should say, it's a point where people actually borrow a little bit of money as well at some point, or they might go into their savings, or they might finance in some other sort of imaginative ways. And that's the point about probably bringing it all together. So I don't know if that answers your wider question, but I think there's definitely an opportunity that makes life a little bit easier and can make things more cost effective when it can be programmed with other works. And also, I think if I think about landlords, well, there's activities that plan maintenance programs and refurbishments. And there's opportunities when property dwellings are void, homes are void as well. And that's the opportunity to think, is there something we can do at this point? And I think it's an opportunity that we're not necessarily making the most of. Yeah. I completely agree. And that very much aligns with what we've been doing, aligning works with natural breaks in income or natural breaks in someone living that make sense. You're not adding an additional layer of cost, or you are, but you're adding to an additional layer of cost rather than creating a layer and adding to it. So, so without prolonging that, there's something that's probably quite interesting in there is if somebody's doing a degree of demolition work or they're doing finishing works that could be replastering or decorating, then it makes sense to only want to do that twice. Don't do it at the time of building refurbishment or, as I say, bathrooms or kitchens, and then do it again at retrofit. See if it can be planned so it can only be done once because it it saves duplication and it saves time and money. Yeah, exactly. And lower carbon cost if that works. Mm. Okay. Helpful. I, I do completely agree with that. And actually, that path of least resistance, I mean whilst you might have to accelerate some works across the whole of the housing stock, that could be potentially achievable. I mean, it's likely that most properties get refurbished at least once in, let's say, 27 years that we've got till 2050. So that would make sense. Okay. And on another topic, how does Trustmark actually work with stakeholders like energy companies? Since you mentioned the district heating systems earlier, in relation to regulations and compliance, Okay, right. That's quite an intriguing question. We're able to have an effect where we've got contracted relationships with organisations. And what we mean there is those organisations primarily through being Trustmark registered businesses. Now, there are some, I know energy companies was just an example, but there are some energy companies that bear Trustmark registration. But there's also an indirect impact that we have in terms of compliance and supporting them meeting their obligations insofar that under the energy company obligation under ECO4 or under the newly emerging Great British Insulation Scheme, there are requirements for organisations. And in this instance, let's use energy suppliers as the example to use Trustmark registered businesses and that work to be lodged onto the Trustmark data warehouse. Now, what we do with that, we feed that into our risk-based quality assurance programme. So what we're actually doing is either directly through registered business or indirectly through organisations such as energy companies or managing agents that support the deliver some of these energy company obligations. We're actually supporting them through our compliance process, really, to make sure that the work is to the right standard and meeting the right the right quality aspirations. But I think the other thing that we do, and I don't think this can be understated really, is the opportunities that we get to go out and speak and engage 
with all the major stakeholders at more or less every level, really, in terms of the areas of policy that we have inf- delivery influence over. I think it might be a bit inappropriate for, for us to go out and advise on policy because we don't set it. But where we're connected to it and where there's an expectation of us to participate in it, we're able to go out and communicate and engage and take questions, build relationships. And the strength and the depth of those relationships help you get into much more open and honest conversation and be able to answer more questions and perhaps even just simply refer to various people and individuals and departments within government. Yeah. Really, really interesting. Okay. So quite a lot of different ways that you do without influence Mm. that you're able to kind of help ease some of the friction in relation to, because this is a space where more regulations have come in and more regulations are coming in that are hard to deal with than any other that I've got to know. It does seem that this is a particularly nitty area that people struggle with. So it's really good that there is that, that role. And I guess one of the things we referred to earlier was the capabilities and means of different tenures, for example, in relation to finance. Like, let's say you've got social housing versus private rental property owners versus outright home ownership who may or may not be able to pay for the works. They may or may not have a mortgage and so on. The policies and regulations, so we'll talk about finance in a second, but the policies and regulations apply to these different types of property ownership are quite different. I wondered mm-hmm. if you could just give a quick whiz through what the current regulations are for each of the main property tenures and how the regulatory landscape is likely to change, which, again, differing between these groups going forward. Okay, so let's talk about social housing to start with. The government's green growth strategy set targets for social housing providers to attain a minimum of EPC rating for rented properties by 2035 to EPCC. That's something that's kind of already established. But then the delivery behind it is something else. So there's the social, we're not quite getting into private finance yet, but the Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund, whereby I think the government put somewhere in the region of just under £4 billion aside over a 10-year period to help social housing providers meet the requirements. So that's a lot of money over a duration. It isn't going to cover the entire cost, but it's going to go some way to supporting it. So we also know that at the end of... Uh, I think it was 2020, or it might have been early 2021, government put a consultation out towards the private rental sector towards bringing over and above the Mies requirements that already exist around EPC Band C, about bringing dwellings, rental properties in the PRS up to EPC Band C by 2025, which isn't very far away yet now. And that's new rentals, I should say, new lets and existing rental properties that are already let, and that's not an exchange of tenant in the period of time by 2028. Now, we haven't seen a response to that yet, so we don't really know what the timescales for action might look like on the basis that that consultation was published about two years ago. So there might be a little bit more than that. So that's something that we wait and see. So there's emerging sort of drivers to make this change. And I think we've just got to watch the space to see how that rolls out. We've got 27 years, which in some instances looks like a long duration, but 27 years does not pass quickly. So we can't afford to hang a bank. Yeah. Or at least, you know, with these things, it's to the point you made earlier, it's about having a plan in place for approximately when you're going to do the work. And the only way that that is possible is if you have some kind of certainty around what the requirement is and when it needs to come in by. And then what about what about home ownership, whether with or without a mortgage? Are there any regulatory obligations there or policies that apply to homeowners? Well, yeah, right. That's one of the areas of focus at the moment. 
because as I've said, and I think we already recognise, there is cost to doing all of this. And people have to think twice at the moment because there's some people that can afford it and there's some people that can't afford it. And there's some people that really want to do it. And it depends on people's understanding of their own, I suppose, own situations, really. So there is quite a lot of grant funding out there. So there's the Boiler Upgrade Scheme, which is around grants for converting to heat pumps. There is the Home Upgrade Grant Scheme, which is out there, Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund that I've spoken about. And there's also the Energy Company Obligation. But something that might help more with that over the next few years, up until 2026, it's currently planned for, is a great British insulation scheme. So that's open to people with lower incomes, but it's also open to people that live in the least energy efficiency type buildings as well. So it isn't necessarily linked to income, it's linked to the needs. But there is also things that we can do. We don't have to retrofit houses all in one go, dwellings all in one go. We can take small steps. So if we look at the sort of lower cost measures, such as ensuring that loft insulation is adequate or even exists. I think by now, probably most people have got a level of loft insulation over the years. But there's other straightforward things that can be carried out, like upgrading uh, heating controls, energy efficiency, lighting has a relatively substantial effect. Before we start to move to some of the more costly, but still reasonably measured improvements that we carried out, like cavity wall insulation. So I think one of the things that it sort of seems to exist in some people's psyche, it's all or nothing. I think it's about taking small, affordable steps as well in the in, in the interim. Okay, that's really helpful. But so just to clarify then, there's regulations that already do surround the energy efficiency of social housing. And there's EPCE as the baseline, the current target for private rental sector. And that's potentially going up to sea, but TBC when. And for homeowners, there isn't really anything requiring them to... There's no policy driver currently or or in the way that there is in some of the other areas. And I think some of the things that are being reviewed and spoken about, and this is only anecdotally, is is there mechanisms that can be put in place at the point of sale or is there something ongoing? Um, And there have been conversations about looking at how council tax applies to dwellings based on their energy efficiency. Now, I don't, it wouldn't be right to judge the outcome of those things yet, but we do need to start now thinking about what incentivizes people that own their own dwellings and that are in control of their own finances about the incentives or the mechanisms. I think there might be reluctance to drive regulation around it. I think it needs to be done. And I think the understanding I have back through our relationship back with government, it needs to be done in a in an incentive type way to start changing behaviours and educate. And there's one really important thing, I probably should have mentioned it a bit earlier, Funded by UK innovation money, there's something called the National Retrofit Hub, which has very recent, well, pretty recently been launched. And it's about getting industry together to look at the things like how we make more readily available and innovative sort of finance mechanisms, how we look at the supply chain, how we look at trading, how we look at general education. Because one of the things I don't think we can forget this needs to be a push and pull type arrangement that needs to be incentive for people to do it. But there's also got to be reason that people want to do it as well so i think the national retrofit hub will look at all the ease looking at all the areas by all the working groups and the people that are associated it through industry which is pretty considerable and i think we'll get a strategy out of that which will drive all those areas and all those different mechanisms in those different arenas that we need currently yeah really interesting okay and thank you for mentioning that and we talked a little bit about financial assistance and what's available and who it's for how can a property owner, let's say, find out if they or their tenants are eligible for funding and ultimately access it? 
<laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> there is an answer for this. The government produces some help on its website, of which I'm looking at a link now because it's quite a lengthy one. But if somebody went to the government website or simply typed into a search engine, find energy grants for your home, help to heat, it'll bring up, I think some of it relinks out to sub-websites or sub-areas about the boiler upgrade scheme and, scheme and about the upgrade grants and separately out to the Great, Great British Insulation Scheme. So there is a mechanism. It's at fairly high level. You have to drill down a little bit into it, but that will refer back into what the eligibility looks like and what the funding can look like and the application mechanisms, really. Really, really helpful. Thank you. And finally, one of the problems with targeting a minimum EPC, like we mentioned earlier, both in terms of social housing and private rental sector housing, is that the steps needed to achieve a minimum energy efficiency standard, whether that's E or C or whatever it is, are different to the steps that you would follow if you were doing a fabric first retrofit to optimise energy use intensity. So if you were or are a private rental sector investor today, what would you be doing with your properties in relation to retrofit given current and also planned minimum energy efficiency standards? They need to start formulating a plan for their portfolios, really, because the EPC is sometimes being used for a purpose that it was never designed for. An EPC is, is giving a rating of a dwelling and it's giving some information and some help about the particular improvements that can be made. But when we start thinking about whole house and considering fabric first, because fabric first won't be right for all dwellings. I mean, there are some, as I mentioned earlier, that might be in constant areas or they might be listed buildings that you can't necessarily carry out all the fabric measures because of the planning constraints around them because we don't want to lose our, our sort of building and architectural heritage so epc is an indicator of what can happen but it needs some interpretation by a retrofit professional at least people with understanding of the steps that can be taken and in the right order so if i owned a portfolio of investment property or rental properties firstly i'd be Having a look at my, I could be getting my housing stock assessed to determine what the constraints might be, what the property types are, what they might be eligible for. And then I'd need to start planning in a sequence of which houses can accept, which properties can accept, which measures. And I'll give you an example. And it's the one that most people use. Some older dwellings may require internal or external wall insulation, and they may also require window upgrades. But it tends to make sense to do window upgrades before you put either external or internal wall insulation on because of the damage that potentially can be done at the point of removing and replacing windows and the potential to invalidate guarantees. So it's about assessing dwellings to understand what can be done, and that's the sort of starting point, and getting into some sort of sequential plan so that the right measures go into the right properties in the right sequence and at the right time. And not every measure is suitable for every dwelling. So I'm not sure it's a clash. I think an EPC is set for a slightly different purpose as to a whole house fabric first sort of plan which is delivered through a, a relatively new standard it's been around a few years called past 2035 they're not opposing but they're slightly different and the past 2035 process really outlines things in an order and on a journey to net zero over the next few years about these are the things that you can do now these are the things that you might do a little bit later and these are the things that you do towards the end and it just sets a journey out, which I think we have to be respectful of as well, because at the risk of repeating myself, it seems pointless to do some things twice when you might only need to be able to do them once with some careful planning. Yeah, 
absolutely agree with that. And it's not easy to, I guess the criticism of EPCs as a system is that they're simplistic, but equally like show me a better system that can apply to so many different types of property, different mm-hmm. locations, different circumstances that could be universally applicable. It's very, very difficult to do that. So it's a kind of a poison chalice to try and come up with the perfect system that works for everything and is cost effective to report essentially or to capture. And that is kind of, I mean, to my mind anyway, that's one of the reasons why it can seem like there's a bit of a clash between systems. It's because one is simplifying things more and actually, to be honest, it's better than nothing for sure. And if the alternative is paying someone to come out and visit each individual property, that can be very expensive. It's not a cost effective way to work out what you're doing to a property, even when those works are costed, they can be very expensive. I think it's great. there's some advice needed because an EPC doesn't give advice. It doesn't give as such. It does make recommendation, but it's about some professional advice that, again, there's going to be a cost attached to it, but there's a cost attached to not doing it as well because you build in inevitable sort of duplication and unintended consequences and cost, I think, really. Yeah. But an EPC has got a function. It's whether we're now starting to use EPCs for things that they were never actually designed for in the first place, I think. With, and I'm fairly agnostic towards the whole conversation around it. And not in that, I think it would be wrong for me to become too involved because I'm not a, a technical expert on EPCs and how RDSAT works and all the mechanisms behind it. I think it's got a purpose. It's just we've got to use it for its intended purpose, not the one it wasn't intended for. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Wonderful. And if listeners want to find out more about you or Trustmark or get in touch or follow what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? That's dead easy. You go to our website, it's trustmark.org.uk. And on the website, there's a lot of information about us and how it works. And also you can follow us by the usual social media channels that we use and they're listed on the website too. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me and thanks for listening. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.